0: Welcome to The Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Someroo. Hey everybody, this week I am joined by Chris Tackerberry, and he is co-founder and CEO of Clinithink, a technology company built around Clicks, the world's first healthcare AI capable of truly understanding unstructured medical notes. What a problem to solve that is. Chris is a qualified physician and has an MSc in computer science. Um, Spent nine years in clinical practice in anesthesiology and intensive care before embarking on a career in healthcare IT. Combined experience in medicine, computer science, and leadership has been the foundation for his stewardship of Clinethink's strategic direction and growth. So Chris, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing?
1: Great, James. Thanks very much for having me. Great to be here. Looking forward to the conversation.
0: You're very welcome. We've got, we've got a little bit in common, not that I've built any uh, massive technology companies, but um, obviously anaesthetics and intensive care being a common, a common thread. Um, tell me before we get going, uh, were, you, were, you pushed, were you pushed out or were you pulled out of medicine?
1: That's a very interesting way of putting it. Um, I was pulled out slowly mm. I had a lot of fun in my clinical career, learned a hell of a lot. I loved working in the theatre and the ICU environment. They're, they're massive team environments. Wouldn't have chosen any other specialty. Enjoyed the, the clinical work, but the front line, I mean, even back then a long time ago, and certainly now, the front line of, of healthcare on the clinical sharp end, it's a very tough place to be. It's a very tough place to work. and. Because, as you you said in the intro, I'd done a a master's in computer science on a small detour (laughs) (laughs) during my my education. I was kind of convinced that there were things you could do with software and software products you could create which ought to make the jobs of those frontline people a little bit easier. And I felt really strongly about that over 20 years ago, and I still feel the same. And so, although I don't practice medicine myself, I don't see patients anymore. I like to think that through the work that we're doing at Clinithink, we are continuing to help make that job at the front line a little bit easier.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it, you're right. It is a, an incredibly tough place to be right now, and I think you'll you'll probably be similar in terms of like the messages that you get and the emails that you get from people that are still practicing of everybody wanting to do something different and i think it's uh, yeah it's it's definitely a tough time now and having diversified into computer science very early on i think it's i think it's something that's increasing and people listeners of this podcast will know that i feel very strongly about people that are sort of dual trained or dual qualified in something that can help within medicine as well as then qualifying in medicine and i think people like yourself end up seeing the world of medicine very differently because you don't just see problems you see solutions and problems you know how you might be able to build something to fix something so you're not in the doctor's mess talking about problems and and you know joining the echo chamber of problems you're actually giving a different side of the coin and saying like well we could actually build this so super interesting and like obviously really fascinated to learn about your background but I know we've jumped in a little bit prematurely, but it'd be great if you could uh, tell us the long version, Chris. Tell us your story. Tell us everything all the way up to uh, all the way up to Clinithink.
1: OK, I'll try and do that succinctly. Um, as we spoke about, I spent quite a few years, just under 10 years on the clinical front line. But I was cooking ideas about how software tools might make the frontline job easier in a whole variety of ways and, and leveraging what I learned in computer science. And I will say that I think one, probably the most important thing of the most important benefit of being dual trained, as you call it correctly, is that you understand that software engineering is an extremely intense, difficult profession, just like medicine, yeah. right? This, you know, I'm, I'm not making value judgments in either direction. Um, and computer science that refers to people like us as domain experts. So we have expertise in a particular domain in healthcare, and we can bring that knowledge to help interpret what's going on in the shop floor to the engineers who are building systems. And that's a crucial role to, to, to building successful solutions. But back to my story, I think I I sort of, I was quite frustrated in, in my job in, in intensive care in relation to how difficult it was to get hold of information that was already sitting on a computer somewhere else in the hospital. And we still had to make phone calls at three o'clock in the morning, looking after critically ill patients to find out, you know, important, you know, numbers and lab results and stuff, which I, I just thought was ridiculous. And so in a sort of fit of peak, I went uh, searching on the internet for companies that build what we now call electronic patient records and cut a uh, long story short there. I ended up going on a sabbatical from the NHS to get, a job with one of those companies they were kind enough to you know take a risk on me they saw the benefit of the of the dual skills very early on and it's a long time ago before we had things like chief medical information officers and chief clinical wow. information officers which I think are a great innovation and um, i I had a pretty steep learning curve in in learning how to work with software development teams build commercial software products and Um, you know, the whole, that whole cycle of uh, developing and implementing systems got involved in some quite big projects, implementing, you know, large scale systems. And that turns out to be mostly about the people and how you manage that process and very little about the technology. You know, there are lots of products, say in the EPR space that do roughly the same thing. They've all got their, you know, um, pros and cons, but it's as much making successful implementations at large scale with IT is a skill in itself. And that's how I've had the fortunate opportunity to learn a lot about doing that. As, um, after working for that company, I, I did some consulting, again, in, in, in the context of, of healthcare and also in telecoms. I did some work for Skype, which was a fascinating experience. B2C is a business-to-consumer as opposed to business-to-business, to business, which was Again, fascinating, huge scale, hundreds of millions of users. But in the back of my mind i'd always, I'd always had this kind of feeling that patients are not going to stop telling their doctors' stories and doctors are not going to stop writing them down. And the difference when we set clinic up with my co-founder, Pete Johnson, who's also a physician, the difference at that time compared to maybe the, the prior ten years, is that by then, most people engaged in clinical practice at the front line could type, they could actually use a computer. And therefore, those notes that used to be handwritten are being put into a computer in what we call a machine-readable format. And Pete and I both felt strongly, and I think we've been proven right, but it took a long time, that um, that's really where the value is. That's where the really valuable, important detailed clinical information is in those notes. Discharge summaries, outpatient clinic letters, surgeons, operation reports. Those documents are very carefully created. They might only take a few minutes to, to write, um, especially with very experienced and senior clinicians, but they contain such detail. I was convinced, and I still am, that you can use modern technology to pull information out of that kind of of inf- of of asset um information asset data asset that's hugely valuable and we barely scratch the surface of what's possible now that we've you know sort of perfected uh, the the platform and we can you know we can start to see the evidence of of the benefit it can deliver it's, it's been a long journey starting a company you know <laughs> technology startups you know, 99% graft, 1% glamour, and you, you you don't really, you don't know what challenges you're going to face. You just know you're going to face challenges. So, and ironically, I think working as um, an intensive care doctor really prepared me for the sort of event-driven nature of of a startup environment where you try and maintain a semblance of control, but there are things that you can't control which you have to understand and react to. Very similar to intensive care.
0: I love this, Chris. There's so, there's so much there's so much that I'm going to uh, talk to you about here. The first the first thing that I want to mention is this notion that you don't just wake up one day able to build a company. You talked about the difficulty of software engineering. You talked about the fact that that is a profession, a discipline in itself that requires deep knowledge, deep understanding and experience as well to give you that feeling, that sense of being truly dual qualified because you got your 10,000 hours and some in, in medicine and intensive care and anaesthesia But you're alluding to the fact that you didn't just do a quick course on software engineering and then have the ability to do this and the confidence to do this and the ability to realise that vision. You talked about joining a company, a big company, learning not only the technical software engineering stuff, but how different people interact and how different departments interact and how different functions of a business interact. And you got your learning there. You also then mentioned B2B company, B2C company, again, varied experience in the way that different people do things within software. So you're learning that whole discipline in the same way that in medicine, we don't just learn what diseases are and what their treatments are. We don't just have one big spreadsheet of those two columns. We learn how different areas of medicine interact. We learn how different people interact. We learn about the human factors. We learn about how people are transported from A to B and what can go wrong. There's so much that goes into being a true physician and medic that goes far beyond the book learning of medical school or else we could just do it straight out the box, right? And I think that's really important because I think if we're going to make a difference in health tech broadly as a, as a collective of individuals that come together as co-founding pairs or that same individual like yourself learns these two disciplines, we have to have respect for both of those disciplines in the difficulty. And I think there are so many medics that message me and I kind of hate to say this, but like, there is this air of, I don't want to say superiority, but almost like, I mean, you're smiling, right? You know what I mean of like, Medics think they can do everything because they were straight A's captain of the sports team and got into medical school, which are incredibly difficult things. I appreciate that. But there has to be this respect for the difficulty of, of software engineering and computer science and data science and the fact that there are people... That are going to be way better than that than you could ever be, as well as the fact that you can go and try and learn it yourself. And actually, you, know, you talked about a co-founder there, and perhaps you're more software engineer than physician. I don't know, and actually, that's where you excel, and that's why your co-founder's physician. I don't know, but we can get into it. But I think I. I I just have this really strong passion that those two worlds need to collide far m- off, far more often and far better than they're doing so right now. And I, I love that it's starting to happen. And I love there are these dual trained people like yourself and you're definitely a pioneer of it. I've, I've not spoken to anyone who's perhaps done it as early as you did. But yeah, I, I, think, that, I, th- I think that's, um, it's, it's a really important aspect, right? Not many people thought it was a good idea when I did it. I can assure you. <laughs> not many people um, thought it was a good idea when I was trying to leave. Let alone, like I, I phew, the, the conversation I had with my anaesthetic consultant that like I wasn't going to sit my exams. Like you'd think, I'd just offered to like yeah. shoot someone. Like he's yeah. like, what? What? Yeah. You're not going to sit your exams? Like phew. arguably, it
1: was worse in my case because I did. Do, I did the FRCA, so I've got. I've got the postgraduate right. you know, qualification, and. um you're not supposed to leave at that point, as, as I say, and and I I, I understand why um, they were shall we say irritated, but mm. um, I hope that the investment uh, the, you know the investment comes good because what we what we're trying to do at CliniThink is you know deliver value back mm. by having te- you know taken um, what was learned. There's a few clinical people in the team, but I think what you've you've hit on a really important principle, actually, James, which is, if you think about um, medical training, Mm -hmm. that is a qualification, you know, which you have to study hard for, and then an apprenticeship, and and then practice and learning, right? Yeah. And computer science is no different. Mm -hmm. So, So working in a commercial software organization, you know, you have to have a qualification, you have to have a computer science qualification that requires, you know, study and learning. Then you have some kind of apprenticeship. And and then you start to build, a, you know, practice and confidence and experience. And you, you're absolutely right that if you look at my IT career, you know, after my, my healthcare career, I, I did exactly that, right? I had a qualification, then I did an apprenticeship, and then I started to, you know, get more senior and make, um, be responsible for, 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 for bigger stuff. Exactly the same. And it's in i mean, extremely proud of the fact that at Clini think we've we've helped people. We've taken computer science graduates and turned them into successful commercial software engineers. Exactly that that apprenticeship process, and you know some of them have stayed, and some have gone on to to continue their their um, IT careers. And you know, it's it's lovely. We get people writing back, and some people actually come back to the company because. The domain, the space we're actually in, you know, a software company like anybody else, software is used in, throughout every aspect of our life, you know, B2B and B2C, as we said. Um, but people still find the work we're doing at Think, the leveraging of these incredible, powerful techniques mm. um, to solve difficult problems in healthcare quite compelling.
0: Well, it's let's I do yeah. Well, absolutely, and let's let's talk about that now. Then, so I want to take you back to where you talked about the frustration at, for want of a better phrase, the dates the data waste. I can picture in my mind's eye right now the intensive care unit that I used to work on and all its equipment, all its screens, yep. all its beeps. Yep all the printouts all the written notes everything on the pack system everything i can think of so so much data every single second from you know 14 beds and just, just everything that's like there right with the framework that a software engineer has I can imagine, I I thought it was wasteful. Like, how are we not harnessing all of this? Like, why is this all not centralized? And then some something, some algorithm, some artificial brain doing what my brain does and then multiplying that. And I actually, I I can remember, I had a a conversation with um, my, my consultant once because I was sat, I was, sat uh, I was doing like a, it was an easy list, like lumps and bumps list or like gallbladders or so, something in anesthetics. Anyway, I was just sat on this list and there was plenty of time to think because you put all the drugs in and you can wait on those as long as nothing goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at the, um, they had a little drop in blood pressure. Someone gave meta to just, you know, hold the blood pressure up. Yeah. And I was, just, I was just thinking like, all I'm doing is I'm responding to what the anesthetic machine is telling me. So the anesthetic machine has all the data. And all I'm doing is looking at the so the data is going from the machine into me. I'm making a decision, and then I'm doing an action. So metaraminol is then getting picked up by me, and then put in the patient. And I what else am I doing? I'm looking at the surgical field. I'm looking at the room. I'm analysing whether people look anxious. I'm looking at the search. Surg- so I'm thinking like, all of this is data, right? And I just had this idea, which, which seemed ridiculous at the time because I had no software engineering experience or anything. But I just thought if you also put drugs in via the machine and the machine also learnt when you put drugs in and why and it can then learn everything that I'm doing because I didn't feel like it was that difficult that if it had a camera to look at the surgical field if it had temperature sensors if it had everything that I'm sensing if the machine could sense it and then you connect all of those machines up around the world all of a sudden now you've got something that has got all the experience of every anesthetist ever and some i don't know it just it just struck me as like wow but i imagine it's a similar sort of thing right when you're thinking about thing, you're looking at the intensive care unit and you're just going my goodness there is so much data here i don't know you tell me feedback on my ridiculous idea
1: <laughs> no, no 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 i mean you know you know a ridic- i don't really believe in ridiculous ideas i believe in ideas right You've got to be prepared to think and see outside the box. But interestingly, in that little vignette that you just described, James, mm. a, a situation you know takes me back immediately. I, you know, those of us that have worked in that environment, what, you know, recognise what you've just described um, very clearly. I think you're actually underselling the role of the the clinical professional in that situation Fair. quite a lot, because the the ability the, the the human brain as opposed to artificial intelligence the the ability to simulate all those different kinds of information input as exact some of the really subtle stuff does the surgeon has the surgeon stop talking mm. right that sometimes means he or she is struggling mm. right and that you're and you're about to see the result of that struggle on the, the instruments that you're monitoring and stuff like that so so I think so that although what you've what you've I'm not going to call your idea ridiculous, I think it's at the far it's that kind of context is at the far end of where we can help. And yeah. you know, it's it and I, su- I suppose what what we're sort of living and breathing evidence of at Clinton, think is the fact that you can apply much less kind of space-age principles, quite quite robust, you know, mm. software principles to Actually, much less um, complicated or technical problems, but still really important healthcare problems, which you couldn't possibly think about solving any other way than leveraging this technology. I'm, a, you know, I I believe in <laughs> human delivered healthcare. I believe in the importance of the relationship between the patient and their physician in the, in that you know encounter, whether it's you know ten minutes over you know some virtual consultation or in the intensive care in or for an operation. I'm not trying to engineer humans out of the process. Mm. What, what I think we and those of us in this field are trying to do is delegate tough, difficult work to the machine that they can do well, not perfectly, humans can't do it perfectly either, to then release precious clinical time back to those people so that they can do the tasks that only people can do with other people. Mm. And, I sort of try and stay away from some of the more space stuff. It's exciting to think about. But what I learned through some of those big implementation projects is, as I, as I said earlier, it's as much about how you implement things as the particular features and benefits and functions, whatever of the, of the software package.
0: I think you're right. And, and I think the, the way that I've best heard, and, and you know, whilst, it's a nice thought experiment to, to think, what if there were no anaesthetists and could you get a machine to do it? You're absolutely right. I mean, there's so much that goes into it. And the best way I've, I've heard this described is that is that you, if you're trying to find a needle in a haystack, you, you're never gonna build a machine to actually go and find the needle, but what you can do is build a machine that can remove some of the hay. And I think that's what some of the some of the AI solutions have done very well is tell, tell you what's normal and get rid of that or pick off, as you say, really robust um really robust technology just automating some of the really simple repetitive tasks and one that comes to mind for me is like how many times did i write a patient's number or a patient's name on pieces of paper every single day and i was like well how much time this has actually cost me (laughs) it's like to add this up like what a task that is and like labeling blood bottles and like i don't know there's there's all these little things right um but i am interested for you to talk about clinically i know you mentioned it a few times um and in this context, I guess, tell me about the idea for Clenny Think and tell me, tell me then what it is, what it turned into, how you, how you built it. Sure. I mean,
1: as a, the, the idea is simple, which is that the healthcare domain has been a bit slower to adopt technology, you know, to support its businesses than some other industries like banking or retail. And I think there are there are very good reasons for that, and it's the, it's the complexity of the information. You know, medicine's an art as much as a science, and all that flows from that. Is, you know, there are it's a f- intensely people-driven process. A human body's super complicated when it works normally, and it's even more complicated when it malfunctions, if you like. And um, that you can't capture all of that in numbers, which is what computers like to deal with, right? So we talk about structured and unstructured data. So structured data is filling out forms so that data is all manageable. And if you're buying insurance or booking a holiday, or you know that sort of thing, great. That stuff works really well, and we've seen it transform our lives and make the our experience of those industries and services much better. Hopefully, much more efficient. Certainly, medicine is much harder. So electronic patient records have been around for a long time. You need them. You need them to run large healthcare providing organizations, it's a challenge to introduce them into the into the context of a of a patient-physician encounter. You know, that's clearly the case. But they're well established and they're prevalent across, you know, the certainly developed health economies. They they don't deal with this narrative piece well at all, other than being a, a repository to to capture that data, right? So as we've said, discharge summaries, clinic letters, operation reports. What those are is a reflection of the physician responsible for for the care in a sort of thoughtful mode, quickly summarising what I've learned in the last 45 minutes or what I've seen and and how I've managed it and what I plan for the future for this person who's been under my care, say, for a 10-day spell in hospital that might have been an emergency admission or, you know, it might've been planned care, et cetera. So you've got all of that medical training, all and whatever experience that person has. So those documents get more valuable, the more senior the physician is all kind of concentrated into, it could be two, two or three paragraphs, but they're incredibly important. And you'll know yourself, James, that often a way when you, in in a clinical context, if you meet a, a, a new patient, the fastest way. Of trying to understand their context, their past history, and what's kind of going on, is to look at that correspondence, to look at those documents, and quickly read them. Right, and that's a skill that young doctors develop very quickly. And so, our thought at Clinique think is, well, if you work in an organisation that sees a thousand people in the outpatient clinic a day, that's a thousand of those documents every day. And if you have a thousand bed hospital, then you know that's thousands and thousands of Inpatient episodes every year, you started to build up a huge data asset. and until technologies like ours came along, that information, although it was what we say machine readable, is sitting in a computer. you can't do anything with it. and so you then find there are classes of problem which require the review of that information, which which can't can't really be done. and to 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 give you an example, Quite recently, we did a piece of work with Barts, large teaching institution uh, hospital uh, in in London. They were they wanted to find people whose diabetes was at a particular stage uh, in relation to to diabetic foot disease. So diabetes can can create all sorts of problems for people's feet. Very important, and unfortunately, sometimes people have to have amputations. And the clinicians at Barts once knew the characteristics of the people whose diabetes was at that kind of tipping point where they might be at risk of requiring an amputation unless they could be found, assessed, and and, and maybe, you know, really hammer their their diabetes um, management regime to try and prevent or delay that need for an amputation. So they knew the people they were looking for. They were defined by a set of, of very detailed clinical and social characteristics. You can't go to an orthodox database and look those people up to then go and reach out to them and say, hey, can I assess your diabetes to make sure that it's we've got your diabetes is under as good a control as possible to prevent you requiring an air protection in the future. The reason for that is the information needed to find those people is not in the structured data. It's only in the notes. It's only in the letters, the reports. So that's 14 million documents at Barts for the population of about 1.2 million people that they look after in East London, you can give that job to our machine. So in a few machine days, days of machine time, don't forget the machine doesn't get tired, it doesn't go home, it doesn't get sick, it doesn't complain, it'll just get on with the job. So that's effectively free time. It will search that huge corpus of data, the 14 million documents, looking for the characteristics that the clinicians told us were important for this particular group of people, just just as as an example. And the BARTs team estimated that it would have taken 100 clinical person years to do the same search. So you talk about needles and haystacks. So many of these problems, particularly in population health, are looking for needles in haystacks. And arguably and this, this isn't intended as a criticism, but, but all, all that people could do up to now, kind of, is sit outside, the, sit outside the haystack and hope that needles will walk out, right? It's hope. Whether you're looking for people to recruit into a clinical trial or looking for people whose chronic disease is, a, is a one of those tipping points where you know if you intervene now, there'll be so much more benefit in terms of the patient's, Experience and clinical outcome, as well as probably cost to the health economy, so you get a dual benefit. But you can't find them, and no one's got time. Who's got a spare hundred clinical person years? You know, no one, right? So that's that's where the magic happens. And if you arm yourself with a tool like anything, you've got a magnet, and that magnet's going to pull most of the needles out of the haystack. Not all of them, and it's going to pull some things out that aren't actually what you're after but you can then focus your precious clinical resource on what, on what the the machine pulled out it's not foolproof nothing is and you know it has to be done carefully with you know with the right sort of controls in place but that's when you start to think of problems like that there are many many of them and because no one could imagine sitting down and reading 14 million documents and understanding what's in them they don't let themselves imagine what could be solved if that were possible for a machine to do. And that, the exciting thing about where we're at with the, with the company now is that's, we, we're doing that. We can do it repeatedly. It, we, you know, we've got systems deployed in the U.S. and the U.K, and people continue to find new and powerful and exciting ways of using this basic capability, which is to get the machine to read all these documents releasing clinical time and and creating all sorts of powerful and beneficial outcomes.
0: I think there's there's a few things here that get me. So I've taken a look at your website and I look at all, all the stuff and the language that you use on there and, and this this harnessing the power of unstructured data, I think is really interesting because you're right. When those things are written, all those little phrases, all those little ways that clinicians communicate to each other, what I like about you guys not sitting at, I suppose, the source of the data, so you're not collecting all of the beeps and the, and the squiggles and the stuff from the machinery. You're not collecting that data from the machinery. Um, what you are collecting, though, is you're collecting the succinct information in part you're collecting this, you're collecting the succinct information that's already gone through one filter. It's already gone through one human filter in order to summarize it, which therefore means it has got more meaning to it. So the, uh, The enunciation that people have put on certain elements of that, the contextual emphasis on certain things is telling more of a story than the raw data, which I think is one extremely difficult, arguably the more difficult thing to do, which to your previous point about never replacing humans, you want a human doing that bit. Because actually, the processing power of the brain and the and everything is far more trustworthy to get to yeah, yeah. to get to this point. Now, what you're then doing is reading all the notes. You're reading all the notes that humans have done. To then provide a data set and a source for that next level of finding things and linking things and doing that more chronic disease bit of like a mm, rare disease bit even of like, well, they've said these five yeah. things, and this has come up a certain amount, and actually, yeah. could it be this chromosomal yeah. thing, or like, you know, there's all of there's all of that sort yeah. of stuff, which I think is super powerful. but I've never really thought of it in these terms before, actually, but this is what this has just sparked it for me that. That actually th- this is the second pass and actually it has more it, it, it has more potential because it's the second pass almost because you've you've taken a load of what-ifs out of the equation by letting humans do that first bit which actually i really like and i think that's really cool i'm interested now in i suppose the technology part of this um with you being a software engineer and 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 having that understanding and, and ability well, to explain this, hang because on James,
1: hang on. no 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 no, I, I've got it. My, my guys will kill me. I'm not a software engineer, right? I I have profound respect for software engineers. Uh, unfortunately for our developers, I can actually read and
0: understand commercial code. Well, at least you you have certainly more of a view of it than I do in terms of understanding. And, and as and as you say, yeah, understanding fine. I know broadly what natural language processing is, and I'm sure that that has uh, a part to play here. But this is this is natural language of a clinical nature, which is, I suppose, right. a, a, another layer in. And I, I, I can recall at medical school on the on the, you know in the first week they said over the course of the next five years you're going to learn I can't remember what the number was but a hundred thousand new words and and all that sort of stuff yep exactly exactly right so i'm interested now how how difficult is this for you and your team to truly do this because there's a level of trust now needed from those that are acting on the information that come out of clicks or your other products so yeah. How do you build that trust? How do you explain this technology? How do you build this? Te- what is this technology or how difficult is that to create? Let me be
1: succinct synch- in my answers. And you, you've raised a couple of really important points. So let's, let's start with the most important one, which is there's a, there's a reason we call the company Clinything, And that's because we want... We'd like our users to think of the technology as a colleague, right? Interesting. Which tries to think like a doctor. That's why we called the company thing. Mm. But it, of course, it can't. You know, artificial intelligence is actually quite dumb. I mean, sorry <laughs> to say, right? <laughs> but it—it's most of its power comes from you know huge, unimaginably large, non-human scale processing capability brute force in effect mm. and um if you you if you harness that in the right way you can do these amazing things mm. and you can find signal and associations and relationships that you you couldn't otherwise find right so so let's not you know that that's why i'm i'm a traditionalist. a human's always going to be part of this process mm. yeah yes i can I can now book my own holiday without having to interact with another human being, but I do not want healthcare without humans <laughs> being on the other side of the, of the virtual or physical desk or bed or whatever. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you're, you're absolutely right. Natural language processing is a thing. It's been around for a long time. It's a discipline in computer science, just like speech recognition. So and we can see how far that's come, you know, mm. Alexa, that works pretty well, right? Mm. Um, but it's, it's maybe taken 20 or 30 years worth of um, white-hot innovation at rapid pace, rapidly cycling to get it up to that level of reliability. The reason that you know we, we insist that there's always a human in the process where our software is being used precisely because That's where the ultimate decision making lies. And the way we've built our tools on purpose is we simply expose to the user what the machine's found. You decide. Right. And it gets stuff wrong, right? It gets but interestingly, humans get stuff wrong. Mm -hmm. So if you anecdotally, we've seen this many times. If you sit a physician or a nurse or someone whose job it is to review a load of case Mm -hmm. notes or charts, they call them in America, manually, and if you if you give them 10 records to review and you know they're reasonably complicated people who've been in and out of hospital a few times and got a few health problems that could easily take them an hour per chart and their accuracy and recovery of information and stuff goes drops off a cliff Mm -hmm. after a couple of hours worth of work Mm -hmm. of course it would because they're human right so Mm -hmm. so although software like ours is not perfect we don't claim it is it makes mistakes you know there's, there's there's good evidence to Anecdotally to suggest that at scale the error rate is much lower. Mm. So the first thing is, you know, if you if you need perfection or you're making real-time important clinical decisions in an environment like ICU, you should not be using our software. And Mm. you you just just don't know two ways about that. However, if you're trying to reduce uncertainty and you're trying to find groups of people who've got certain characteristics who are trying to find signal, as we call it, that's important for some reason, let the machine do the hard work and find, you know, do its best job at finding that signal. And Mm -hmm. then you can review. And so rather than looking at a whole haystack, you're now looking at candidate needles, if you like. Okay. And that's, so you've maximized the human, you know, value in that process sitting at the end of a load of heavy lifting that's been done for you by the machine, and I think the reason that you, you quite rightly mentioned that um, NLP is a discipline, it's you know is is across all industries and domains and stuff like that. So there are applications that people have built that will. Um, the f- one famous one was you know feed a load of Michelin star restaurant recipes into a into a computer and then see if it can make some new recipes of its own, stuff like that. Which I gather was quite successful, but the you, you you were quite right, James I believe when you leave medical school, your vocabulary is probably doubled, mm-hmm. right Not only that, you and I have never met before. Imagine we were back with our clinic mm-hmm. in our clinical roles, maybe I was in the emergency room talking. To you, the ICU doc about a patient who I thought needed intensive care. And I say, I've got someone who's had a big anterior. (laughs) You know that I mean they've had a big anterior myocardial infarct. You turn around to the nurse in your unit and say, We've got someone who's had a big acute MI. Interesting. And then when you speak to the relatives, you say, I'm awfully sorry to tell you that your husband or wife has had a big heart attack, but we're doing, you know, but they're stable in the ICU and we're doing everything we can. So we've just had a big anterior, acute MI, and mm. heart attack all refer to the same thing. So that complexity wipes most conventional, non-healthcare-specific NLP, just yeah, kills useless it. Stone here, yeah. neck. It's useless, yeah. utterly useless. And then on top of that, big variety of those are synonyms. They're all synonyms in the same concept. Mm. On top of that, you've got things like the patient denies breathlessness. I could see, see no evidence of urticaria. So you've got very important negations, Uh, as they call it, in our trade. And then you've got, of course, the fact that medicine's mostly dealing with uncertainty all the time, Mm. especially in primary care. You know, people think doctors make diagnoses. They often don't. You've got a set of clinical problems, which you're bringing to me. I'm understanding those. I think it could be this, this, and this. I'll treat you for that and that. I'll do these investigations, which may reveal this or that disease or may not. And you'll either get better or you won't, in which case I'll replan, right? Mm. So this this person may have motor neuron disease. This person is a possible COPD. So you've got certainty, severity, negation, laterality, all those things, language constructs which make the signal even harder. So if you're looking for people who you know are breathless. You don't want the person where the doc has written, the patient denies breathlessness. So we've spent years and exposed the platform to billions of words of text to get it to understand and unravel most of that complexity so that you're finding mostly the people that you're looking for, the characteristics that are important. Mm. And in, we would say generic NLP platforms don't stand a chance against that complexity we only do healthcare, that's what we understand, yes. that's what we've learned, yeah. that's what we practiced, and that's all our machine does. We've been at it for a long time. We've got some patents around how these this particular problems manage in terms of resolving that, that information into something that's computable. Part of it is NLP and part of it is other bits of approach and methodology that, because the user doesn't care, there's a black box putting a ton of data into it and you're getting some useful and valuable insights out the other yeah. side. We show the user where that's happened, how the how the machine has what the machine's found in the text that refers to the concept they're interested in. They can do the rest. They can decide whether they believe it or not, agree with it or not.
0: I, honestly, I I love this, Chris. And of course, I'm biased because of our similar backgrounds and and everything. Of course, I uh, I come to it with a bit of bias, but I think the way that this has been built and the specificity that it has to a very 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 clear use case in healthcare is superb uh, and looking at who your customers are and clients are you know your hospitals around the world pharma companies there's a lot of ways this is being used you've got three products clicks unlock clicks focus click revenue so your' your all this analytic insight uh, the rare disease stuff optimizing um workflows for you know thinking about hospitals globally for revenues or saving and cost savings and stuff so there's so there's so much that that is being done here um i I guess my final question before we start wrapping up is uh where are you guys at right now in terms of your growth your ambition and where would you like to go
1: um i think we where we find ourselves is um sort of Uh, The other side of um, all of the challenges relating related to you know startup technology companies, you know, does this Mm -hmm. stuff work? Does it create value? Will people actually use it? You know, all those Mm -hmm. things, which are all really important challenges that any 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 new technology company has to face. Healthcare is particularly challenging in some respects. It's a it's a relatively conservative market. You know, decisions are made quite slowly for understandable reasons Mm -hmm. and healthcare organisations are under enormous strain at the moment especially and that's one of the most exciting things about the fact that you know we in nearly all of the use cases that our software is used to support um, you know at the heart of of the value proposition is is giving releasing clinical time and that you know never has has that been so you know more important you know post-COVID etc so I think um, we're very proud of what we've achieved, and we've got a really solid uh, foundation. We, we, we've in the jargon, we've got referenceability, so the solution, as you mentioned quite rightly, is is in use in some pretty prestigious organisations and mm. you know, across the world, and that gives people confidence that it works. It does, and it can deliver value. It does, and so that you know that makes it easier to grow. And so we're trying to keep up with demand, frankly.
0: Awesome. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I'm sure there'll be plenty of people listening that might want to get in touch to learn more, not least some organisations <laughs> that might want to try it, but also individuals that might want to uh, join you on your journey, perhaps. What is the best way for them to get in touch with either you or the company more broadly?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've got a website like everybody else and you can learn more about what we what we do there. And um, we're pretty active on LinkedIn which I, would, which is, I would say the, you know, our sort of premium or our priority uh, social media channels, seems awesome. to be a good fit for us and and our community.
0: Awesome, Chris. Thank you so much for joining me. I think, as I say, potentially I'm biased, but I think this is a is going to be a real key driver to pretty much the biggest problems that we're seeing right now we know that there's a workforce problem with morale and volume and all sorts anything that we can do to improve conditions for those working in this environment and crucially i believe to allow people as much as possible to practice near the top of their license rather than wading through 14 million bits of, uh, unstructured information, uh, you know, whatever number you said, I think anything that we can do to improve those conditions is going to help massively. And it's very difficult. I think having spoken to so many entrepreneurs on this podcast, I think it's actually very difficult to build a business model that actually incentivizes for improving the conditions for individuals, because what ends up happening is that if you save an hour a day here, It's not a cash in hand saving for the organisation. So really that same person just gets squeezed elsewhere or or whatever it is. But I think this is the future of allowing people to have a more uh, appropriate clinical existence in their job. I I think there is no need for... uh, Certain trained individuals, in fact, most trained individuals, um, to be wading through the data that they have to. And I think for organizations, for them to find those efficiencies, for them to find those rare diseases, for them to find all of the things they can do with all of this unstructured data actually presented to them in a better way, with, as you say, a person a very intelligent member of the team, let's call it, in what you've built with Clinithink, I I, I I, think that the possibilities are pretty endless in terms of what this can do. So I do wish you genuinely all the best. I know you're working with Barts and a few other hospitals, even in the UK. So um, yeah, this is something that I know for a fact makes the world a better place. And so um, thank you for building what you've built.
1: Thank you very much, James. Thanks for uh, the opportunity